Hey everybody, welcome to Evil Chat number five. This is the second one with uh, my buddy Stu. And it's really good, I think. Uh, we really get deep into it and I my head was spinning after the end of it. It was really spinning after I edited it because it was uh, there was a there was just a lot a lot of ups and downs and ins and outs. It's pretty interesting. Um, we talk about a lot of things. Uh, a lot, we revisit one of the questions from the last conversation we had. Uh, we talk a lot about variables and components of training and dealing with all of that. Uh, we, we, he gives uh, some cool exercises near the end. Uh, in terms of workouts and uh, questioning which asking you to question which is uh, which would impose the most load on an athlete which I thought was a lot of fun um, yeah there no there's we talk about uh, where coaching practice is going a bunch of different things it's really cool so I think you're gonna really enjoy it I'm not gonna talk too much longer other than to say that I am revamping that sport parent course uh, shortening it to just the really good graphic videos and adding a bit to those and going to tighten it up, um, make a new price for it, a little bit cheaper. And so look for that. And then I'm going to get right to work on a full-on developmental coach course. I have a lot of it done already. I just need to sort of put it together, clean it up, and get it up on the site. So that's coming up real soon. All right. So just some things that are coming to eviltracksport.com. Something to look forward to. Uh, and once again, thanks for all the feedback. Really appreciate everybody. It's really, really good. So uh, it's always fun to hear. And keep the questions coming because I am collecting them. And they are going to end up in a podcast at some point very, very soon. Oh, yeah. One thing I forgot to mention. This podcast with Stu, this conversation was recorded uh, before. For the first one was actually posted online, so you'll hear a little bit of uh, argy bargy at the beginning, and that's what that's all about. All right, so here we go. For better or for worse, my second evil chat with Stu McMillan. Yeah, uh, you'll be. Uh, I, I I'm gonna put you up third. Put me up tenth. So man. you were I gonna be. You were gonna be. Number one, you, I wanted you to be the first guy, but because you have a complete inability to embrace technology, what are you talking about? Why? So I've been forced. I don't understand. I'm really embracing technology. What am I not doing that I'm not embracing technology? You can't even upload a fucking SD card to, to the, to the internet for crying out loud. Yes, I I can. I so definitely now can. I, I just do not have we... the technology to be able to do that. I'm embracing it. I don't. You want me to go out and buy a new computer so I can do this? Is that what you want me to do? Well, it's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, anyway. I'll go to I'll go to um, my office tomorrow. I've got a couple other computers no. in there. Like, what's the op- no. what's the opposite of an well, apple? What's the opposite of what? Of an Apple. Like, what's the other computer? Yeah, no kidding. Eh? That's exactly what I'm thinking these days, Yeah, but, man. but whatever am, that other computer is, I've got two of them in the office. Like, what are they? Oh, okay. I, IBM? Like, like is that PC? what they're called? P- PC. PC, PC. Yeah, yeah okay. PC, yeah. So yeah. I'll see no, if I we, can do it on there. Yeah, I can't do that, though, because I don't have that technology. 
That's, you, that's, you haven't embraced you haven't no, embraced it's technology got nothing, yet. that's got nothing to do with it i just don't have the technology it's got nothing to do with not embracing it uh are kind we, of the same so thing if we but, talk okay. about anything that we've already talked about are we talking about what we said earlier like is this going to be threaded into the past one or is this going to be a separate thing no I think it'll be separate things. So we can, and we're so actually we, recording right now. If so. we refer to it, then we say last time, not earlier, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that would be good. I think yeah. actually, that okay. So let's. So we're rolling. Okay. Yeah, I know we're rolling. I pr- so, I, I pressed record on my thing. Remember, yes. we did that little clap and. Yes, because you're now embracing technology. I am embracing technology. Yes, yeah. I'm glad you've. Yes, good. I'm glad you're firmly in its embrace now. Anyways. Um, so, uh, but you know, seriously, I think that discussion last time was 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 pretty good. Um, my God, how long did we talked for two hours and we didn't even get to the big questions. And I probably I don't know. I, there's probably another ten snowball questions that we that we didn't get to before we get to the big ones. Yeah, I don't and know I if think- we even got to any questions. We just kind of had a extended introduction slash conversation we didn't really get think, to any q and a's i think we, we kind of weaved i think we weaved through them oh okay i okay. think yeah yeah you you may not realize it but i was i was i was on top of things so that's that's so, that just speaks to your skill as a uh, a podcaster absolutely. yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> expert, yeah expert podcasting there 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 is one thing i want to revisit from last day though uh but before we get to it uh so I, so people listening to this, by the time they listen to this, my first two episodes will have been up and they will have had a chance to listen to them. So the first one was Scott Samlin, Dr. Scott Samlin, who we did right here in my basement. Uh, but I, but I, but I, gave, I ran that by you. Did, did you get a chance to listen to any of it? Yeah, I listened to the first um, sort of half an hour so far, half an hour, 45 minutes. Interesting cat. Okay, a lot cool. Of, yeah, a lot of interesting sort of uh, crossovers there, obviously. Especially, and, and especially right now, right? Yeah, exactly. And, well, it, it got better as it went along, too. The last 45 minutes, I mean, you being a single guy, well, I'm sure that you you totally would relate to this anyways, but the last half hour to 45 minutes actually was pretty personal. I mean, we got talking about bringing um, – you know, bringing work home and not being attentive and being there, but not being there and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it was, it was pretty interesting. It was, uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. I've ran, I ran it by Laurier and a few other people and they all seemed to, the feedback so far has been pretty good, but you, you are one of the only guys, not, I shouldn't say that, not the only guy, but of all the people that I run stuff against, when I do stuff like this, you're the guy who gives me the most honest feedback. So my, my first question to you is why do you not like my logo? Uh, you said it sucked. I mean, you, you didn't even, you, you, you weren't even trying to be polite about it. You said it, you, it's shit. No, that's not what I said. I said it sucks. I said your logo sucks. Oh, did you? Okay. Same thing. Yeah. Um, What's wrong with my look? I made it myself. That really, I, that kind well, that's that's why I don't like it. I mean, you can tell that you just made that yourself on probably Microsoft Excel or something. That it doesn't oh, even that that wasn't even built from a graphics app. You know that I don't have a graphics. No, app. that's I what do I mean. On you PowerPoint. can like that was clearly done on 
said, talk about embracing or not embracing technology. <laughs> Whoever made that logo is not a technology me. embracer. No, but they're very creative because I Yeah, I no, that's terrible. Big. Like, it's really bad. You need to, you need to um, definitely replace that logo. Oh, my God. So now I'm going to have to do it now or, or cut this out of the podcast. Anyways, okay. Yeah, well, enough good. of those questions. Thank you very much. Thank you for being brutally honest with me. At least I know now that. Well, yeah, why, no. Yeah. So why is that brutal? I mean, I'm just being, you, you asked me for feedback. And I'm giving you honest I feedback. I asked and you for, I did not ask you at all about the logo. I did not want to say to you, Stu, would you please give me feedback on my logo? You just, you just threw it at me. Yeah, it's fine. But I still, yeah, I still exactly. gave you there some you feedback. Why, now you, whether it's brutal or not is on you, right? It's, you, I, would, I would assume and hope that you would want my honest oh feedback, my which gosh. you've already said. All right. Right? Yeah. Would, you, I, I, yes. would you rather me lie to you? No, no. So I'm giving you my honest feedback. I think you, you I think you could make for the quality of work that you provide, which is really high. You know, it's really good quality work. Um, now you're stroking me. No, no. So I, I, said, I'm being yeah. honest, okay, right? Like it's it's okay, really good thank stuff. You. Thank I, th you. I, I think it. That. I think it deserves a better logo. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I I'll, I'll hire a graphics designer and I'll send all to the bill. How's that? Yeah, that's you, you you can do that for me for Christmas. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know these they, yeah, yeah. they have those little uh, things you can put it up for, for auction or whatever, right? And you get all these people around the world bidding for it. And you could get a logo done. Really? Yeah, yeah. You could get one, five or wow. six different ones. Uh, it would cost you fifty bucks, and they'll give you five no or six way. options. You say, all right, I want you to rework option three a little bit. Get it back to me. They'll rework it. Get it back to you. You've got the whole thing, that whole whole process done for fifty bucks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. Pro What's it called? You know? You know off Oh uh, yeah. There's all sorts of them. There's there's lots of them. Oh, okay. Now. It's, okay. Um, I'll just. I'll yeah. If, if if you remind me when we're when we're finished here, I'll. Uh, I'll okay. I'll find cool. It. All right. Yeah. All right. Um. So I just want to. There is one thing I want to revisit from last day, and that's the. And and I I didn't get a chance to listen to it because well I don't have. Because you haven't embraced technology yet, and I don't have your end of the of the thing. But anyways, you asked me a question about something about you know um, what do you think about getting too deep into it, getting too deep into the details? Do you think there's a danger of that, or it was something along those lines? And again, I I didn't listen to my answer, but my recollection it was pretty scattershot the reply, and I was. Um, thinking about it all week and I mean I don't you know we have three huge questions today I mean we so we're gonna we're gonna actually make this probably a number of talks you and I but today we picked the first three of the heavy heavy hitters and they're probably the biggest questions I think so we'll, so I don't want to spend too much time on this but I was thinking you know um I think there is a danger, obviously, to doing that. And there's the whole overcoaching thing when you get too deep into the details and all of that. But to me, the real danger in that, in breaking things down too much, is that you start to think of all of these different abilities or sub-abilities or, um, I mean, it could even, you know, even in a technical sense, small elements of mechanics, you start to think of them as individual pieces. 
because that's the way that we, that's the way we study them. That's the way that we, in, in some sense, that's the way that we break them. You know, the military have an analogy of, of you, you look at your, you look at your enemy. How does this go? You look at your enemy, you divide them, and then you beat them in isolation. And that's kind of how we, I, I heard that on a podcast. It might have been a Sam Harris podcast. I'm not sure. But anyways, I, it was a general or somebody talking, and he said that's, that's essentially military strategy in a nutshell. And on the face of it, 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 you know, I mean, it does describe what we do, right? Is we break, you know, we break everything down into component parts and we attack them individually, right? Makes sense, right? But where that particular analogy breaks down itself is that when you do that as an army to an enemy, you don't have to go and put it all back together again. Once you've broken them down and defeated them, that's it. You've won. Whereas in what we have to do, we always have to remember that they do come back into a, into a cohesive whole at the end of it. And that's what we have to be careful of. That I'm, And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, isolate and or at least target very very specific abilities we absolutely should and that's that's how we you know that's how we get that's how you know that's part of the sophistication that we you know that we that we bring to to training methodology but at the same time we have to remember that none of none of these things i can't think of one that ever actually operates in isolation and so i think that the the, the real danger with that is that when the more and more you break it down and the more and more you study it, <clears throat> the more and more you have a danger of, you know, thinking of everything as separate entities, even though maybe consciously, you know, you keep telling yourself you're not, but it's a very, it's, it's a bit of a slippery slope. Would you agree with that? Am I way off base there? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, right? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, you're, you're describing the scientific reductionist process to a T. I mean, that's sort of how right. we learn so much about the world is through reductionism. Uh, we learn about the world through component parts. We learn about the human body through isolating its component parts and studying them individually in detail. We learn about movement through, or we, lift, we learn about lifting weights through studying individual muscles and understanding those muscles as individual component parts. And, you know, holism or systems thinking is the opposite of that, right? It's, it's understanding the whole as the interaction of all of those component parts together. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more difficult process, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's our challenge and that's our, that's our next step. Yeah, we can, we can break something down you, you, learn, you can learn about a car by taking all these pieces of the car, you know, these whatever, how many thousands of pieces that have a car. You can learn all about the carburetor, all about the wheel, or all about the steering wheel, or all about the gearbox, whatever that piece is. But that doesn't tell you anything about the car of itself or by itself, right? It's, 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 that's, and that's the challenge. We can learn about all these different systems within the body that make up the human, the human movement system. But understanding all these, these systems in isolation doesn't really tell us about the end product, 
the end products of human movement and how do we affect that, right? That's, that's our biggest challenge as coaches, man. It's uh, understanding the interactions of all of these different component parts. So say you've got a very basic system and you've got two component parts within that system. That's a fairly easy system to understand, right? You've got to understand mm -hmm. this component part and this component part and how these two component parts interact together. Pretty simple, right? Yeah, because you've if only got two variables. You've only got two. What if you've got 10? Now, even if you've only got 10 component parts, how many different interactions are there between 10 component parts? Thousands. Yeah. It's literally mm -hmm. thousands, right? Mm -hmm. It could be hundreds of thousands. I can't remember the, the number. Now, the human movement system is hundreds and thousands of different component parts all interacting in nonlinear ways. How do we understand that? Right? So that's, that's, yeah. that's our biggest challenge in, in, as, as coaches, right? So, and then, then we've got the human movement system interacting with multiple other human movement systems. So athletes interacting with athletes. They're all interacting with, say, you know, if, if, if they're playing a team sport, they're interacting with other human movement systems, opponents. They're interacting with another, you know, with the ecosystem, the entirety of the environment. And they're interacting with another complex system, the task, whatever that task is, whether it's soccer or football, or track and field, or, or throwing a shot put, right? So you have all of this interaction, and then you, us as coaches are trying to come in and somehow influence the totality of all of those interactions together. And then, on, and then understand how we influence them, and then how our influence um, or how our interaction with all of those different component parts influences the adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that's, no, that's the hardest thing, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but that's one of the hardest, hardest things in coaching, right? It's not understanding component parts, it's un understanding the interaction of many, many component parts that feed a purpose of this system and trying to predict, predict an adaptation based upon all of these different interactions. You know, yeah, I mean, I always, now, now that I've been involved in this Bonnerchuk system for, gosh, 14, 15 years now, but especially in the last five or six years, well, maybe eight years when I was actively using it to coach and then doing the course, right, because that was a deep dive into it and all kinds of aspects that I had never really considered before because I didn't have to because I was, you know, mainly coaching in the throws right but when you look at it across everything anyways the point is is that because of the way that system set up not that it's any better than any other system but just because of its uniqueness in the way that we don't wave low volume and intensity really opened my eyes to how sensitive the body is to change right and change is good but it has to be managed for instance when i talk to an snc expert or specialist or i see a bit of programming let's say where these loading variables are changing day to day week to week you know and i just like now you know before i had worked in the bonner check system i would have looked at that and said yeah this all makes perfect sense and it does make perfect sense but the but i look at it now as man that's just more variation within the system that that you know you're putting on top of all this 
this myriad of all these other interactions that you you really I mean most of them we don't even know about right I mean you know so it's it's so I always you know the one thing I like about the Bonnerchuk system it has limitations no doubt but is and I, I'm not trying to wasn't trying to actually purposely bring it to this but you know until you until you control for some of those variables you really don't have an idea I think that system offers you an opportunity to understand change at a level that we just don't because it's so extreme in its in its management of loading. Let's, so let, extreme. Yeah, you know, let, that let's, it's let's let's dig down on that a little bit. If you had to choose then one one reason why you feel the Bondochuk system is uh, is a successful system, what is that one reason? It's that. It's that. So what, it's that. It's so, that. It's it, it. It's so much easier to manage right. a response. So if we in dig dig digging not, into that, yeah. then right, we, because it's got less component parts, so it's easier for us then to understand and mm -hmm. manage whatever the uh, our assumption of whatever the adaptation is, because there's less parts. It's why yeah. a, it's why a polarized program is is um, is is. Um, is appreciated by so many people, right? You take, you take, you know, uh, the 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 you know, real the uh, real ends of the continuum of a polarized program. You've got say, okay, we're only going to do. So let's say you're a sprinter. You're only going to do example. seventy percent tempo and max fly tens. Mm -hmm. That's your program. That's that's all you're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to just you high low system. You're just going to do tempo. And, and flies, tempo flies, tempo flies, mm -hmm. tempo flies, tempo flies. That's, you've got two component parts within your system. You're gonna, you're gonna run that exact same program over and over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can really begin to understand the interaction between those two component parts mm -hmm. and get better at predicting the adaptation. Now, as, yeah, soon as, I, you, I, as soon as you add one more component part to that, that increases yeah. the complexity of that mm -hmm. system Mm -hmm. Astronomically, now yeah, try totally. now. And you look at most programs. Most programs are going to have five or six or ten component parts within it. Now right. try to understand the interaction between those ten component parts and es make an estimate on adaptation. Yeah. This is why I appreciate the Bonachuk program, uh, Bonachuk system, because you basically you're having two to three component parts. You, there's no wave loading of volume in in and intensity. You're just running that program over and over and over again until until whatever you know there's some sort of pl plateau in the adaptation, and you can see that very very clearly if you're if you're you know measuring the correct metrics. That's that's for me the the brilliance of the Bondachuk program, and I think is where so many people get lost in you know more complex programs. If you have five different component parts in your program. You better be a really good coach to try to understand totally. the interactions of I that totally and how they how they interact towards an adaptation. You know, so I totally agree. Go ahead. There's, there's, sorry, there's a couple. I don't mean to cut. You. Uh, there's a couple things I would say. That's a great example, and I would even argue that in that in the example you gave, the polarized, where you have you know a, a, a lot of very general work. And a lot of highly specific work. It's actually also there's less variables on another level, and that you, I mean, when you're talking about the specific work, you, I mean, you really don't have anywhere to go. Like if 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 your goal, like you know, you're you're training a high end athlete, so you know you have to be very very specific. 
So there's not a lot of room there for in terms of the type of stimulus that you have to choose from to accomplish the specific goals that you have, right? Right? I mean, you know, you're not going to have them run 10K work, right? It's got to be above a certain intensity. It's got to be sprinting or acceleration. So not to put it down or anything, but I mean, it's, it's you know, it, in, in that sense, it, it's kind of easy. It's not easy, I mean, especially with high-end athletes. But if you're working, especially if you're working with lower-end athletes, I mean, that's your... You know, that's your your zone. If you're in that zone, you're fine. I would argue that the other stuff, the stuff that is general, it doesn't really matter anyways. Like you could pick any one of a hundred different types of general exercise. You wouldn't don't even need to run 70% tempo. You could you could just probably do general, straight general exercise as part of your polar, you know, as part of your polarized plan. It doesn't matter what you pick, right? And that's and that's so there it's even easier. Like do you understand what I'm saying? As opposed to if you have if you have a very sophisticated program and you have, let's say, again, to use your example, 10 variables and eight of them involve high end specific work. Well, then you really got to be careful because you're especially if it's a high end athlete, because those high end athletes are so sensitive to those, to those special workloads that one is hard enough to manage seven more right of the do you, do you follow am i making yeah, sense right yeah, 100%. so 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 then you have even more interaction going on that is hard to manage and this is one of the things i learned in the last few years working with bondercheck like i could never figure out why he always only wanted to use one program he uses like one program being a workout yep. okay so so you know he would he always had his his um his throwers, and you can do this in throws, okay? Argue, you know, uh, admittedly, you can't do it in a lot of sports, but the point is the same. The principle is the same. I would always use two or three because I was all, you know, I was still learning the system and that, and I was, I was still hung up on having to do a number of different exercises. I always wanted to have a squat or I always want to have an Olympic, you know, and you can't put all of that into one program and do it 10 times a week. So I would have three programs. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So I would have triple the amount of inputs he would have. And he, you know, and because he, he can't always explain things perfectly, you know, his, his rationale was always, you know, like you, you peak sooner with one, which is true. And you have more peaks during and uh, a given time frame, say an annual, say a year, which is true. But the other big benefit of it, I've learned since then, is I've moved to one program. It is so much easier to manage. You just have to get past this hangup we have on trying to hit every single fucking base that you can in your programming. So you're, uh, you know, so for instance, and this is a real problem with young coaches, right? Because they learn about balance and they learn about stability and they learn about max strength and they learn about uh you know rehab exercise they have so many of these areas that out of their enthusiasm and wanting to be a good coach and do the best for their athlete they feel like i mean i was like this right when i was a younger coach is you know you you have these programs with all these exercises in them because you know oh i gotta have that and i gotta have that and and all you're really doing I mean, it's, it's not that it's bad, but you're just feeding so much into the system that I don't know how the body ever sorts it out. 
right? Whereas if you have a very, you know, like in the bondage check system, you use one program, we'll have, we'll throw maybe two hammers, we'll have one or two lifts and they're, they're global, okay, in nature, they're global strength abilities. Um, you'll have a special exercise of whatever, 12 to 15 reps, and then you'll have a general strength circuit at the end. And that general strength circuit, I don't, I don't even think about what I put in there half the time. It's just, it just has to be different than the last program. That's the key. All of the stuff just has to be different, right? It's very easy with general because you're, what you have to choose from is so great. Whereas when you only have five hammer weights to choose from, that's a different story, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're bang on right there, Derek. I mean, we, we talked about that last time too, right? When we were talking about the challenges of young coaches and understanding, it's not in understanding what to put in to the program, it's understanding what to pull out. And we talked about that with Coach Tellez mm -hmm. and how the whole uh, mastery process of, of coaches and their development is getting better at understanding what is not required. And I mean, it's, you're, you're in your 50s, I'm in your 50s. That's not really got that much easier for me, you know? I'm still battling myself every time I sit down and write a program. I, I, you know, it takes a little bit of balls to throw out some of these things, you know? Like it's, it's easy to put, all right, we need this, 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 and I'm going to put this, 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 and this exercise in there because that's covering all my bases, right? But that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's the more component parts are in your system, the more complexity is in that system, the more difficult it is for us to understand and predict the adaptation to that, you know, the interaction between all mm -hmm. of those different component parts. And also, the more that each of those different component parts are, are fighting for, the, for this finite resource that the athlete has for the adaptation, mm -hmm. for each individual adaptation for all of those different things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. I try now, you know, I, I limit myself to a certain number of component parts where I can understand, I can better understand that adaptation mm -hmm. and I, or the interaction, sorry. And it's, it's the biggest, you know, that's harder now with social media because there's a lot of really mm -hmm. great coaches sharing a lot of really creative and cool stuff on social media that I look at, oh man, that looks great. <laughs> you know, I got to find room in my system for this. And then I see that and, oh, that looks cool too. And then that looks cool and that looks cool. And yeah, then, no, no, and totally, totally. All of a sudden you just got this big mess again, man. It's, 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 well, this, it's, it's like, this, like going back to the Bonacek system. It's, it's the reason why that system works. It's you're limiting the number of component yes, parts. I totally agree. And you can't, it's, it's a kind of system where it, it, I mean, it actually is a system and a framework as opposed to something that is more like, you know, the way someone has achieved success. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it's, it, it actually is its own sort of protected little system. You can do whatever you want within it as long as you play by the rules, right? Like as long as you, you know, you, you, you manage change using the, the framework and the methods that he has, right? And so, uh, or that he's laid out. Because once you, if you start changing things in the middle of a PD, PDSF, as we call them, then, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you're not going to be able to rely on that reaction. And if the athlete, if you are expecting and anticipating a peak with, you know, with X number of sessions and you go and start changing things in the middle of it, for no good reason. Sometimes you have to if there's injury issues or that. But then, then, 
you're going to get a different result. And so, you know, you may, that may be good. It may be, maybe not good. Right. Anyways, I think, you know, the, the last thing I would say about this is, you know, all of this discussion we're having is based on an understanding that what we know about basic physiology is complete and true, right? So for it, but that may not necessarily be the case. So, and I'm not saying that we, that, that what we know is wrong, but think about this. Like, I remember this distinctly, Dan, talking about when he was getting deep into James Oshman, is that the guy that that fascial expert who was, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I remember about his work and what, what Dan was so interested in was that basically this guy comes along and says, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the way the body communicates movement, as far as we've traditionally understood it, it doesn't apply anymore maybe the body moves you know has a whole other communication system within it that we never even knew about and it's faster and it's you know i am i right there is that with you know the fascial matrix and all of this and 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 i remember him telling me explain this to me and i was like shit really like like everything i've invested in intellectually <laughs> cognitively in terms of the nervous system and motor learning and anatomy everything i built my programs on is based on this and now you're telling me there's a whole other thing here that's been there this whole time that i didn't know about i was like oh god no i can't i can't read i can't read it because it's just gonna send me down too many rabbit holes and you know when i when i really um this is the last thing i'll say on this but the, when i really got into the bonder check system uh, and, and I had something that was reliable and repeatable. I was like, that's it. You know, it's like, I, it's not that I won't do any, I coach without it all the time, but it's like, I was like, okay, I'm going to be more careful about what I let into my head now, because I just, I just, I get too, I'm too easily distracted. I get, I get too excited about new things and I, and I'm afraid of getting sucked down rabbit holes and, you know, and, and, but However, you know what I mean? Like within the bonder truck system, you do, you have a lot of flexibility to, you know, in terms of loading, you can load any way you want, really. There's really no limitations. That's not what the system's about. It's about, it's about how you manage all of the loading. Right. But anyways, yeah, I mean, that's, that's go on forever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the point. And, and we can only make decisions based upon the information that we have first and foremost. But the opposite side of that is we have to understand that we don't have 90% of the information that is there or 95% or 99% or whatever that percentage is, right? So we have to leave room for not knowing, right? But yeah. that's, not, that's not the same as guessing. That's just, you know, being like, like you said, just being a bit of a sniper with the information that we use to make our decisions upon. And that goes back, you know, to what we were discussing before. It's a lot easier for us to make those decisions uh, based on the interaction of few component parts than it is on the interaction of multiple component parts. And then, and then getting back to what you said about sort of, you know, Dan and, and, and fascia and, and, and fascial matrix communication and so, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's, that's fascia is basically the, how all of the different muscular systems are all integrated and interact together, right? And it's, 
we know a lot about all those isolated individual muscles. We know a lot about individual and isolated systems within the body. What we don't know about is how they all interact and interrelate. And that's, we're not there yet, right? And we're just, what we have to be careful with is making assumptions based upon isolated parts. You know, yes. it's, you know, for example, when, you know, we, we've all made this mistake. We, uh, you know, we have an athlete, for example, that's, that's having some sort of issue that we just can't figure out. And, you know, what do we do when, you know, we've, we've tried everything. We've tried, we've talked to all of the experts and they're just not responding the way in which, you know, we expect them to respond. What do we do? Let's, let's check their blood, right? Let's, uh, let's ensure that this is not hormonal, that this is not systemic. And we look at all of these different hormones in the blood. But what does that really tell us, right? What does the testosterone levels tell us? What does the, 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 the cortisol levels tell us? What does all these different hormonal levels tell us when we don't know how they interact? Because that's, that's, the, the, that's the most challenging thing with endocrinology, right? It's not what each individual hormone is, but how elevation of one hormone affects the depression of another and how that depression of that hormone affects something else. And then you've got all of these systems. They don't act as individual systems by themselves. They're all a part of this bigger endocrinological system where they all interrelate and rely upon each other. So it's, it's, it's an impossible game sometimes, right? And that's what I mean. We just gotta base our decisions on the information that we know today. And then, you know, sometimes we'll make a guess here and there, but we gotta do, I think we have to do better with, uh, you know, respecting the complexity of the human body and respecting the complexity of the load adaptation system in general. I, I, I like that, respecting the complexity of the human body. I well, I mean, did we just argue our way out of, you know, um, a faith in sports science? I mean, I mean, I mean, if, if it's that complex, if it's that, if there's that much to it, isn't the easiest thing just to say, well, I'm just going to look at the system as a whole. I'm not going to worry about any of that. And I'm going to just experiment and I'm going to do this. And if this, you know, if I get results, then it somehow it worked. I don't, I may not understand the, you know, anything in terms of the interactions going on, the various interactions within the body. I mean, I know I may not understand any of that, but I know that if I give athlete X this, that I'm going to get, why result right yeah and it, that's how and you know but that but that you know going being you know doing that too much or being too simplistic you know it is doesn't work either right i mean there's there's so much depth in that conversation right i mean what i know i know we could go on forever yeah. and i you know what you know what i think i think this role if i if I can anticipate what I think you're about to say you, you on, can, this, you on, on our first question, yeah, <laughs> which is 45 minutes or an hour into our discussion, we haven't even got to question one yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I am. I think I'm. I think I have an idea where you might go with this. But anyways, okay. so okay, so now we get into some of the beefier questions um, that you know that I put forward to you for for discussion. So the first one is I'm I'm just going to read it out because trying to blend this one into an, a, a a casual conversation would be tough. But so where do you see coaching in a practical or method methodolo methodological sense heading? 
Do you think coaching practice, beliefs, means, and methods is or is becoming as siloed as our political sphere? Tried to get a little fancy. Tried to get a little, <laughs> a little, uh, little relevant there. Yeah. But, but there's a reason I ask that question because I see the different factions within coaching and sports science. There's are those who heavily. This is where I was trying to get at with this question. There are those that are heavily, you know, they they think strength is the answer to everything. And there are those that think skill is the answer to everything. And there are some that think speed is the answer to and endurance and so on. Even flexibility. We have experts out there that think, oh, my, you know, if they were just doing my flexibility program, all would be good. Right. Um, go for it. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a great question. And there's, there's so much depth in that one, too. Right. And it's uh I don't look forward to having that sports science conversation because that could take us hours and hours and hours. Um, but yeah, I, I also do look forward to having it. This one, this one is, is really interesting to me, especially in our times now, right? So generally, it's a growing reality that we're just not listening to each other anymore, right? In, in society, not just in sport. And we're, lo we're less open to discussion. So we're less open to others' opinions. We're less open to changing our own opinions. You know, we begin with this with a gut feeling, and then every piece of information we select thereafter is chosen specifically to strengthen that feeling. And yep. it, you know, we're interested only in information that supports our current beliefs, political or otherwise, and we shy away from anything that challenges us. This, this, you know, this categorical, simplistic attitude or simplified attitude. It's, it's. It's manifesting in this us versus them, binary thinking, black and white thinking, you know, it's, it's and ultimately more divisiveness in the industry, more divisiveness in society. It's going to be, you know, it will be the, the end of us. It really will be. It's, um, and it, there's a lot in that, right? It's, you know, I, I don't even know where to start, but it's, it's you know, we're, we're never so certain of a thing. Um, when we first that then when we first hear about that thing that's number one right as a caveat hmm. the more we learn about it the more we understand the nuance of that thing the less certain we become and people are uncomfortable with that uncertainty that's a you know so sort of an overarching mm -hmm. caveat mm -hmm. so if we learn mm -hmm. something we hang on to that thing, and that's really challenging to get away from that, right? We have this natural proclivity to hold tight to the first opinion we form on a topic. So it, it's, it's comfortable. Yeah, it's comfortable. It's first conclusion bias, right? It's, there's a name for it. It's, um, oh. you know, it's, it's mostly. And I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it's for first conclusion bias. So it's, it's mostly due to, our due to our laziness, but I'll get into that in a second. It's um, Charlie Munger, by the way, calls it doubt avoidance mm -hmm. tendency or a doubt avoidance tendency. It's a tendency to resolve conflicting information as quickly as possible so that we can return to our comfort zone, like you said. Right, because it's right. comfortable, <laughs> right? We don't want to be yeah. in doubt. It's, not, it's no fun living your life no. doubtful. I'd rather just know something, even though that's not necessarily true. But I don't want to go and dig any deeper because if I dig any deeper into that one thing, that's going to become... It's going to lead me into doubting those things, right? So how that how that sort of manifests in our world is black and white binary opposites, right? Like you said, Olympic lifts are stupid, back squats are dumb. You know, squatting is stupid. It's bad for your knees, or whatever. You can only get faster by sprinting maximally. Mm -hmm. You know, tempo's stupid, carbs are bad. 
you know, fat is bad, whatever, you know, it's, it's all of these black and white binary opposites that just don't mean anything, right? They, they don't really contribute to the totality of our discussion. Uh, Feynman uh, describes, uh, Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist, describes gray thinking. That's uh, putting things on a continuum where on one end of the continuum it's mostly, mostly true yeah. or probably true, and on the other end of the continuum is mostly untrue or probably false, right? It's, and then updating the location of where you fit on that continuum over time based upon additional information, you know, Bayesian updating basically, right? You're essentially updating the probability of hypothesis as more evidence becomes available to you, right? And we really need to get back to that if we were ever at that. I feel, Derek, that this industry was closer to that a decade ago and two decades ago and you know when we were first starting out i feel we're getting away from that maybe just because there's so much there's so many more people in the industry now i, I or maybe it's you know it's it's like i said maybe it's just a, a reflection of the of the entire uh, you know the entire macro system as a, as a whole right and se second I don't know if you've got a, a, a comment on what I've said so far or I'll just keep on yapping. no I, well I no I want to keep on yeah but I, yeah I would just like to you know it's funny because I I you know I, I mentioned last podcast I'm a bit of an insomniac and some some you know I'm up early reading and since you and I've started this I haven't been reading I was up at 3 30 this morning and I by by four. I was writing my script for for my my second podcast, which I started a couple of days ago. Anyways, and my answer for that, I mean, what, the th that next podcast is going to be about coaching, education, and giving people some guidelines about you know how to manage all of this. Right? Number one, it's black and white thinking. Yeah. That is the biggest fucking cancer yeah. that I see, and I'm an all or nothing guy. Okay, everything I do in my life is all or nothing. You ask my wife, you ask my kids, you ask anybody who knows me well, I'm all or nothing. It's the way of, but you just, I just don't see how you can rationally be like that in, as a coach, because it's just, I've just seen as maybe it's my background because I had to sit at a desk under Kevin for basically eight years, four years in Edmonton and then another four years in, in, uh, in the UK, but especially in I, I sat at a desk and studied program. I studied good coaching practice, right? Like, and what did I come away from? Well, there's a million and one ways to do things. So you can't say there's ever one way or one, one, um, you know, you have to think in these nuanced terms because, and, and every time I hear, yeah, exactly. You, you, you went, you, you just gave a list of three or four, you know, uh, you know, squatting is bad for the knees, you know, blah, that's a bad exercise. And it's, it's, I just shake my head and go, you know, and we, we have a question coming up. We won't get to it today, of course, but the one uh, in a couple of podcasts, you and I, that the, the one where I asked about the, the exercises, which would you pick? Right. Mm -hmm. And that, and that is, I think that's going to be difficult for you and I, because, but for some people it's very easy. Right. Very easy. Like, uh, yeah, because, you know, anyways, continue. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, a, no, I, I'm it's totally not an on board with everything yeah, yeah. that you're saying. I, right. I mean, it's it's you're absolutely right. Right. And I think we do it, like we said, because it's uncomfortable for to do otherwise. And what mm -hmm. does that really if we break that down? What does that really mean? It means we're lazy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just simply lazy. 
And, you know, and I would rather, rather than doing the work myself to try to figure out something myself, I'd rather just parrot what somebody else tells me. I'd rather outsource my thoughts to someone else. And that's what we do, right? We go through our entire lives just outsourcing thoughts. You know, we, we allow others to do our thinking for us, right? It's, it's because that is easy. And, 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 and I say lazy to be deliberately a little bit, you know, aggressive. But when you, when you really bring it down to it, that's, there's no other reason for it, right? We just don't do the work required to think for ourselves. As a kid, you know, we outsource our thoughts to our parents, right? In school, we outsource our thoughts to our teachers, in college, we, you know, we outsource our thoughts to our professors. As adults, we repeat, repeat maybe what we heard on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC because we don't, either through laziness or we don't have the time, but generally, often, it's through laziness. We just don't want to do the work. You know, in whatever businesses we are in, we, you know, our thoughts mirror those of the leaders within that industry, right? So as young coaches, we don't do the work. We just pick somebody who's a leader who, or in, in these days, who's big on social media, and they've got a big social media brand. Uh, this is a big brand. They've got this really strong thought. I'm going to attach myself to that thought. That is now my thought. I haven't done any work to try to, you know, to see whether this is a, this is a thought that's, that's valuable to me or not. But he's a leader. He's got a really big social media following. That's now what I think. I think now that... that maximally sprinting fly tens is the only way to get faster. That's it. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing else works. That's it. That's my thought. And you've got an entire industry now that is being influenced in this way, right? We essentially, we outsource our entire lives to others. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, I, um, you know, Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant called this sort of, um, um, uh, the analogy was that this was, we are like teenagers, Right. When he talked about the enlightenment, enlightenment, sorry, that he thought that people coming out of this and becoming enlightened were basically teenagers becoming adults and learning how to have their own thoughts. And he, and he, he felt that, that the enlightenment was this entire thing. The analogy was the enlightenment was just becoming an adult, right? That's what enlighten, enlightenment wow. was, right? Really starting to think for itself. You know, it's um, you know, we we outsource the identification of our problems. We outsource the, the our solutions to these problems. It's because um, it's simply it's easier for us as coaches to to outsource our thoughts to someone else or to some ideology, right? There's there's what you go about going back to like what you said. There's comfort in not having to do the work because doing the work, standing up and telling people what you think, requires courage. Right. Totally. And we don't have that. We're lazy mm -hmm. and we, we lack courage. We lack courage to ever stand up and use our intellect and actually say what we mean and say what we think and say, hey, I'm a little bit insecure about this. I'm not certain about this. You know, this is what I'm thinking right now based upon this, this and this, but I'm not sure. And we're so, you know, we're, we, we, we lack so much courage to actually have that conversation with people. We'd much rather say, this is what I think. This is what I know. And absolutely right, and just fight, just fight my corner. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's so much easier. Right, it's, it's, and and right, it's and because, you get a charge out of it, and you've been taught to do it. Right, right, right. So, so, uh, I'll just I'll just put a few comments in here. So, one is that I think 
I remember, you know, this is this this has driven my parenting um, philosophy for years now. But I think I might have mentioned this in the in the sport parent course, but I'm I'm not really sure. Anyways, if I did, it's buried in there somewhere. But you know, I I, I believe that parents' biggest challenge by a country mile in the next well from now on but for sure in the next especially the next few decades is going to be teaching your kids to think for themselves which which you know has always been something you've tried to do as a parent in the past but it it wasn't life or death dependent <laughs> you know what i mean it it is literally that critical now because for the last 10 or 15 years these devices and i go on about this all the time i rant about it you know this is is these devices have for the last decade have spent they you know they these companies have spent the last decade trying to get our attention now they've got our attention and and we can't let go i'm talking all of us but in particular kids and now that they have our attention they're deep into telling us what to think, right? Is because all the social media. It's not that the companies are telling us what to think, but they, but all all these different, you know, um, you know, all these different influences are that are out there are, you know, people. We're just taught not to think for ourselves, and the problem, and that wasn't that wouldn't be such a bad thing if 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 every device had a had a a a full representation of all of the thoughts that are out there but it's not you they they are actually feeding you you know the more you get down one hole the more they feed you out from that hole i sound like a conspiracy theorist which is horrifying to me but but i i'm telling you man it is that scares the shit out of you as a parent yeah. it is just i mean i don't know and 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 i mean actually my i have three kids one of them I'm very concerned about with this because she's female, okay, and she's at that age. The other one, uh, the youngest one, I'm very concerned about it because he spends too much time on his device, but within the pandemic, it's difficult. But the oldest one is actually doing well in that regard, but it scares the crap out of me what comes out of his mouth sometimes because not, not that he says anything bad, but because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid he's going down a rabbit hole. And in a way, I kind of have you to thank for that because you were the guy that put me on to Joe Rogan and my fort, my son who just turned 14 this year is uh, he's big into Joe Rogan. Right. And I don't mind him listening to that because you know, for whatever you think of Rogan, he's He's, he's fair. You, you can't fault him on that. Right. He likes to present, many arguments and my son is getting a big exposure to that it's scary as a parent because sometimes you know he'll he's he's learning right he's developing his own a attitudes and opinions and generally i really like where that's going but sometimes it, it'll lead one way and i'm just like oh my god and i'll say to my well, oh my god he's listening to this now you know you know what i mean i mean you know but but i think that I, you know i the one thing that gives me hope is that there there are some voices out there that are at least showing a range of opinions from one channel, so to speak, from one, one point. 
And, you know, anyways, we, we've gotten away from sport here. But I, I think that's, I mean, because a lot of people listening to this are going to be parents and they're probably concerned about that as well. And coaches dealing with athletes. I mean, it's, but oh my God, it's such an issue. Right, so, right. so, I mean, you know, we talked about sport education last time, right? So when you pick a side, it's easy to, to sort of defend your side and sell to your side, right? This is why... The, the news channels goes the way they are, right? When you, when you pick the middle ground, when you pick complexity, when you, when you pick nuance, how do you sell that? How do you sell, yeah. well, yeah. we don't really have the answers. It could be this, it could be that, it could be this. There's a bunch yeah. of different no. things here. Yeah, you, you're gonna have you can't to, sell shit when you're, you're doing You're gonna that. have to do the work <laughs> to try to figure this out yourself. Yeah. All we are, yeah. we can provide yeah. you with all of this information. And we can record, and we can provide you this side, that side, this side. And you know, sometimes there isn't two sides. Sometimes there's, there's straight up right or wrong. Let's not let's not mm -hmm. get these conflated, right? But this is, but that doesn't sell, and that's that's the challenging thing. When you're, it's and that's a challenge. It's really hard for us, right, at, at Altus, because we are trying to provide a balanced view on all of these different things that we don't necessarily know everything about. So if there's something that we know a lot about. We'll pick a side on that because we know that that work's been done. No problem, right? But if it's still kind of up in the air and we still, there's many different answers or there's many different correct answers to it, like training. There's many ways to get fast. Not one. Sorry. There's not one. There's as many people on the planet, Absolutely. that's how many people, that's how many different yeah. ways yeah. there are to yeah. get fast. Yeah. And it's the same with strong yeah. and it's the same with anything else. And that's way harder to sell. It's because, because of the said, the said before, because people just don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's comfort in not having to do the work and just sitting back, living a life, watching TV, reading a book, thinking that you're, you're, you're doing something, but not really doing it, right? It's, it's, um, it's recipe. Yeah, yeah, it's recipe. I mean, that's, from, that's really deep down. That's, that's kind of what it is, right? It's, yeah. it's all right, bon Bondachuk's done the work here already. All I have to do is follow these... This program for 32 sessions, all right, then I'll switch to this program, I'll do that session, th that program for 32 sessions. He's done the work, I don't need to think anymore. All I need to do is collect data. So there's, you know, there's, there's, and, I, and I'm not picking on Bondachuk, I'm just saying this is what no, no, some no, people no. would But that is the flip do. side to that, that is the flip side to that system, yeah. right? I mean, I was talking before, you know, the upside to it is what we discussed before, where you know you it's you have less variables, right? The downside to it is you'd better pick the right variables at the beginning, right? That's the whole key to it. Yes. You have to you have to make sure because you're you're if you're only picking five exercises, let's say, okay, and those are the five exercises that you are going to use for the next six weeks. Or, you know, and that's, that's short. That's, that would be a, a thrower on one program. But if you're a sprinter and you're, you're talking a three-month PDSF and you're going to go with, say, you know, three different programs, they better be goddamn right. Because if they're wrong, you know, then you are, then, then the athlete's not going to improve, right? Because the, there won't be as much transfer. That's, that's the flip side to it, yeah. right? Whereas in a traditional system, if you get a month into it, and the athlete shitting a bed, you can, you know, you, you have, you have, you know, you can just keep changing things until you get the right combination. So anyways, um, here's one for you. 
what is the biggest question in sports science that we still don't have an answer for? And by that, I mean it, a question um, that it's been trying to solve, but yet we still don't have the answer for conclusively. And, you know, maybe, you know, we, we think, maybe many of us think we do, ha you know, think that we have an answer from sports science on, on whatever it is we're going to talk about. That may be a factor as well. But what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the caveat to this is I'm not a sports scientist. Um, I'm a coach. You do a pretty good job no, of staying on top of things. Yeah, You're a pretty good resource. Sure, but, I, but I'm definitely not a scientist. So, but, I, but I can say what, I, what challenges me as a coach and through my interactions with sports science and what, you know, you said it there at the end, what some may feel we have an answer for that we don't, right? And that's just the quantification of neural load. I think we've got, and this isn't a world that I live in, in, uh, in, a, in a cardiovascular endurance space, but we seem to be have done that work for long enough, you know, going back to the late 1800s and A.V. Hill's work in the early 1900s, we've got a pretty decent understanding of how to quantify, you know, physiological load from an enduring standpoint. We have zero idea of how to quantify neural load. Zero. And, and what do you mean by quantify neural load? Like understand what the proper neural loads are? Yeah. What the body's, what, the, what an individual's tolerance is of it? How, however you want to define that, right? So it's, it's like this is, sprinting is primarily neural in nature, obviously. So the load an athlete feels through the training process hasn't been well defined. It's difficult for us to quantify what a, you know, a maximum um, 30 meter fly, what does that load through the system look like? We can take an RPE of that and the RPE would be five or six. And the whole session, say we did three flying 30s and the whole session took 90 minutes. That's, that's the way we would typically look at load, right? We'd look at uh, you know, volume load through, through the volume of the session, it's 90 minutes, we look at RPE, it's six. That's not telling us anything about the neural load of what that, what that task was. Or you know, um, you know, a sprinter going out and running a PR in 100 meters over in Europe. How do we quantify what that is? How do we understand what kind of load has gone through that athlete's system, right? Add to that the, the inherent complexity of the entire training process in the first place. You know, it's, and it's- Well, hold on a second here. Hold, hold, hold on a second. So, but do, don't we, do we not have a bunch of uh, these, isn't there technology out there like the Omega Wave that can give us an idea of, you know, how an athlete recovers? I mean, I've never used it. I don't know much about it. I'm not a big, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an Omega Wave guy or anything like that. But it seems to me for a long, you know, that's, a, a, you know, there's been a lot of things coming out like that. Um, well, I, I don't think there's been a lot of things coming out like that. There, there's been one okay. or two. The Omega Wave obviously okay. being the, you know, the... The genesis the most of, of most of that, right? right? It's you know, we started playing around with the Omega Wave, I think, 20 years ago in Calgary. It's and that and, that, and it spits out some numbers, but you know they'll be the first to you know I, I talked to uh, Hank about this, Hank Kreinhorf, and right, and because he's it was, was it his brother that developed it? 
No, 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 no. That was that. that those are the vibration platforms. Sorry. Yeah, well, that's Carmelo Bosco. But he's a big he's proponent. Of yeah, it. yeah, he's a big yeah. proponent of it. And yeah. and he's probably done more research on the Omega Wave and put more elite performers, whether they're military or athletes, through the Omega Wave process than anyone on the planet. And I, you know, we we were messing around with it a little bit in Calgary, and it wasn't, you know, we it was the royal we. It wasn't me so much as it was actual sports scientists, you know, Scotty Ma, more than more than anybody there at the at the Canadian Sports Institute. And I remember having this conversation with Scotty back in maybe the mid to early O's. It was probably in the mid O's. It was probably leading up to the 2006 Olympic Games. And he said, you know, it, it took me six years of doing Omega Wave on 40 to 60 athletes every day to finally tr start figuring out what these numbers mean. Whoa. And, and this is, you know, this is early, early Omega Wave stuff, right? So it's a different technology than, than it's, 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 it's been updated significantly since then. This is a big Is map. it still around? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember telling Hank that story when Hank visited us um, at Altus. Was that in Vancouver? Oh. No, no, it was, it was here in Altus. Uh, in Phoenix, um, maybe five years ago. And I said, I told him that exact story that, you know, Scotty Ma took him six years before he even started to understand the numbers. And Hank says, well, he's a much smarter man than me then. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's, it's like anything else that we collect, right? I mean, these, all these separate yeah. data points are just separate data points. And in and of themselves, they're not that you know, some are more useful than others, obviously, but it's the interaction and interrelationships of all of these different data points that really tell the whole picture. Just an omega wave but in and of itself, by itself, isn't really telling us a lot. Yes, it's, that's what it purports to do. It doesn't, I don't, you know, and I'm not an omega wave guy either, so I'm, if, I, if it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm speaking a little about it out of the other end of me, it's because I slightly am. But it's, I know it doesn't necessarily purport to be the final answer on the quantification of neural load, because I just don't, I don't know if we'll ever get there, right? It's, it's like, it's right. how does that feel to an athlete is such a subjective thing. And how do we then quantify subjective feelings accurately, well, right? So right. It's, it's, I think that's the, that's the hardest challenge. It's what we haven't really done a good job of yet. We also conflate, you know, the quantification of physiological load and some of, the re some of the work that has been done and some of the knowledge that we do have. And we try to transfer that directly over to the neural population. And it's just a totally different system. It's a totally different set of interactions. And I feel that there's been, you know, some real mistakes ma made there. Um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know what to say deeper than that. I don't know how we get there. I really well, don't. Right. So here's okay. So let's assume for a second it is. It does work. Let's say it does tell us what we want to know, right? Okay. So let's say that the omega wave does give us a daily indication in whatever index or number it uses that tells us exactly because I remember Hank telling me it was the whole, you know, or him maybe he wasn't telling me directly. It was it was a lecture he was giving. He said it was the you know, is the holy grail. If it works, it's the holy grail of 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 coaching science because we can have a daily um, we can have a daily measure of an athlete's recovery, essentially in a in a in a nutshell, right? 
and I would say to that, but then what? Like, like then what are you going to do with mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Because think about this for a second, and this is another – I hate to bring it back to Bonnercheck again, but this is, this is another thing that I learned with, um, with bar velocity, okay? Same, same thing, okay? Is that – so the, the, the way I understand the omega wave, Okay, let's say it does what I just said. It gives us this measure every day. The idea then is that you're going to take it and you're not going to apply a load unless the athlete is at a, you know, above a certain measure, right? Because you want them to be recovered to be able to take on the next dose of neural load that you're going to give them. Follow me, right? But that's not what we would do in Bondarchuk system. In Bondarchuk system, we would be because we don't we don't change the load we just would just keep applying the load and they would naturally adapt to it mm-hmm. and this is what bondarchuk says all the time right he says the difference between a peak condition in the in his system when you come into peak condition that's a tr- to him he would, i'm not saying this but i agree with him because i've done it um, that's a true adaptation. The athlete, the athlete system is truly adapted to the stimulus because the stimulus hasn't changed. We don't, we don't, we don't unload, right? We don't need the omega wave. In fact, if you're a thrower, you have something better than the omega wave. You have a throwing distance every day, right? And we can tell, and we know by throwing distance that if we if we are consistent with the stimulus, we don't change it. That in X amount of sessions, they're going to peak. Whereas he says, you know, if you have if you have loaded and loaded and loaded an athlete and then you take the load off, then they are just, you know, they are just reacting to the unloading of it. Right. Which which I'm not arguing with. I'm not saying that's not a rational approach, but it is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have my point is that to me, that's kind of huge because, you know, um, like, you know, because we have this whole group this whole community of people that are buying into this and thinking, okay, well, I'm, I, I have to react to the Omega wave. I have to re- or, or bar velocity is the same thing. If you want to train X zone on the force velocity curve in X exercise, you need to be between 0.80 and 1.0 meters per second with, with whatever it is. Let's as an example, right? And so they are constantly changing variables and load to stay within that zone. Whereas, now Bonnerchuk doesn't use it at all, but I. But in having used the system, I when 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 I first heard about these devices, I was like, "Holy shit, it's perfect for what?" Because it gives us another measure outside of throwing, and we just do the same thing. So another, and I don't manipulate the load to stay within the zone. I choose a load at the beginning of our our PDSF or our macro or whatever, whatever. And we, and I want them to, you know, the weight is not going to change. If they're doing jump squats at a hundred kilos, six weeks down the road or whenever the hell the PDSF ends, PDSF ends, they're going to, they're going to still be doing a hundred kilos. What's going to change is how fast they move it measured by the bar velocity. And I want to see the bar. I want to see that curve, that daily measure go through that zone, start just below it, and end up, ideally, 
over the top of it. Do you understand? So if it's 0.80 to 1.0, and that's the example I use because I have data that, that I've done with athletes that show this, I'm going to pick a load at the beginning of the cycle. That's about 0.75 or 0.78 or whatever. It's, it's a guess in a lot of ways because the, the device isn't perfect, right? And, but, that, the, but then once it's, it's there, it's fixed. And, I, and we just keep dosing them, and they, and they may go down to 0 0.70, 0 0.65, but then they're going to come right up through that zone, and they're going to end above 1.0, typically. I mean, I, I've done it. So that's a completely different way of thinking than using this, whatever, you know, the omega wave or the bar velocity, to stay within the zone. Because what you're actually doing, I, one might argue, is that you're actually not allowing the athlete to truly adapt. Does that make sense? Like, you, you're actually not allowing them to adapt because what you're doing is you're, you're constantly changing the stimulus to stay within some zone that somebody figured out was the ideal spot on, on, on the force velocity curve. And so you might go heavier or lower to keep them in that zone because you think that that's, that speed is relevant or specific to whatever, whatever uh, sport or event they're doing. Yeah, I mean, the answer to that question is it depends upon whether you feel that there has to be a reduction in performance for an adaptation to occur. Well, there could or could not be, right? I mean, that's and that's where these three different reactions in Bonnerchuk's system come from. Mm -hmm. But those are all, but those are all dependent upon where the athlete starts off from. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you know, if you're if you are starting training at 90, 93 to to below ninety percent or or less of of. Uh, of your maximum from before, however you might. Now in throwing, it's easy because we have the we have the results. But for argument's sake, if they're below ninety percent, ninety percent or below in form, well, they got nowhere to go but up. Yeah. So they're gonna go. So they're gonna. You know, that curve is gonna look. It's gonna be a, just a simple adaptation, pretty much straight up, with you know variation, of course. If they are starting between say mm -hmm. uh, ninety three and I think it's like ninety six percent, ninety five percent. Then in the charts, it says 95. But if you look in the literature, there's actually a zone in there. I think it's, it's 92 to 95, I think. Anyways, they will, they will go down first to 90 and then up, okay? And if they, are, if they are starting at a high, you know, they haven't lost much form because all of this stuff comes from his studies on loss of form, right? All of it. This is where this all comes from, right? And if they're starting from... Uh, say 96 to 98 percent, then they're going to maintain. Okay, they're they're going to maintain first, then they're going to drop down, then they're going to come back up again. That's the number three, right? And if you you know, I have a video in the course where I just I kind of graphically walk people through that, and once you see it, you it all makes sense, right? It all, you know, um, they're actually in a lot of ways kind of the same curve. They just they just it all just depends on where you're starting from. If you're starting from a low uh, a low spot you got nowhere to go but up the the one part that is that is i think is kind of um that kind of always hits me sideways about it is he insists that 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 those are fixed for the most part with athletes and they're not fixed because 
we have because you are a three or I am a one or, you know, Kevin's a two or something like that. They're fixed because athletes, for whatever reason, whether they're highly trained or, you know, it's just a natural, uh, it's some kind of inherent property within the athlete. They, when you, when you remove the training stimulus, they will only lose so much form. There are athletes out there and we've, I think, you know, I think Donovan was one of these from talking to Dan, it was like, you know, you know, there are athletes who just don't lose a lot of shape, no matter how much time you give them off. Now, you know, you know, being able to come back and stay healthy and all that aside, once you provide a stimulus, they, you know, they never get below 95%. Once they've have enough training, you know, high performance training behind them, they don't lose much. They just don't. They just, and so they're always going to be a three because they're always going to start from 95, you know. And I remember him telling me that about Donovan and telling me that Donovan also, you know, you know, they get into shape really fast, those athletes, right? Like, they, it doesn't take much. Like, I remember him telling me that Donovan, uh, or maybe it was Boswell, I'm not sure. But it was like, you know, he would come back and uh, with not a whole hell of a lot of training was able, maybe not to run a PB or be, you know, but it was in pretty decent shape just because of, you know, who knows what it is. It's a, it probably has a lot to do with fiber type, I would imagine, right, in the nervous system and all the complexities within that. But, but that's, that's essentially where this Bonnerchuk system comes from. It's this, it's this idea of, you know, and he did, and that's where he studied thousands of athletes and got all of their training data and just found that, you know, you know, it's, and, and the big drop off is at two weeks at two weeks. So everybody's about the same. They lose a few percentage, so, but when you hit two weeks, that's when everything plummets like dramatically between. T so the, you know, I guess one little tidbit out of that is that, you know, you've got about two weeks of doing nothing before, you know, the point of no return with most athletes, unless they're a three. Yeah. We sort we sort of got away a little bit from what the question was, but it's, you know, a question to you, I guess. I mean, we're talking about two things, right? So, and there's kind of two different approaches, which you could take most most methodologies will sit in one of these two things. One is sort of based upon kind of hormesis, right? Which is the Bondachuk style is based on hormetic loading, right? So smaller, more frequent stimuli. Yeah. That's, is that that's, what that's called? Yeah, hormesis. Yeah. Which hormetic, is, which is hormetic loading? Hormetic loading, yeah. Hormetic. Hormetic, H-O-R-M-E-T-I-C. Okay. Yeah, which is basically designed to, you know, um, stimulate. The system, where you know the un the other end of that is kurtosis, K U R T O S I S, which is basically it's to almost almost inhibit the system. It's to put you know it's it's you're looking for this um, this you know loading the system past the point of which it is able to recover from. So then you've got this you know, the super comp compensatory effects that mm -hmm. comes from it, right? right? So most, you know, that's a gas basically, right? You know, general adaptation system is all, you yeah. know, many periodized systems are, are, are based around that type of loading. That's a big conversation too. Oh, a massive conversation. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not really even that interested in that conversation anymore, but because uh, it's... Um, well, I mean, I, and that's that's wrong. I am interested in the conversation, but it's it that is a very big one for sure. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about. I mean, I yeah. mean, it's so simplistic. Like it, the, it really you know, is. But it, it's so but simplistic. I, 
Yeah, I remember, and I'll give you a, you know, a, a story to sort of drive this home slightly. When I, when I first met Dan, which is, I don't know, 94, 95, or whatever it was. Um, my 96 for oh, me. Was it 96? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, for me, it was the, I think it was the year before the Olympics, so it would have been 95. Um, and what, you know, my, my, all of my influences in Canada at the time, at least in track and field, and you can tell me whether I'm, because you'll, you'll know this, the answer to this much better than, better than I, but my influences in track and field were through Charlie. And my influences in weightlifting was Charles Poliquin. And those are my two primary guys that I would look at. Mm-hmm. And then periodization was, at the time, Tudor Bompa. You remember, remember his work? Like his book had just come no, out. He came, and lectured my, he, he came and lectured my theory of coaching class at, at U of T. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. I, I, I have a degree in phys ed. And, and uh, our theory of coaching teacher, Peter Clavora, was friends with him. And he was teaching at York. And that was, yeah. our, man, that was our textbook. And he came down and gave a lecture. He's, a, he's an interesting dude. He's a very good lecturer, yeah. too. He's a funny yeah, guy. Oh, good. Go good. ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, that's, that's what, what I knew. I mean, I knew these, these were my influences. And from Charlie, and what I understood was, you know, and this is the big thing what Charlie was big on, is if you're not operating at high amplitude or high percentage, relative percentage of your amplitude, then he's going to find a plan B for you to do. So it was more, you know, it was, it was more of a hormetic approach to things, right? No, at no time, like every, every high effort, session he wanted you operating at high effort and high energies and if you weren't then he'd plan b you and then i get down and so that's how sort of how how i'd set up my programs at the time and then i got down to um to texas and i watched dan guys and, and dan's guys at the time were operating under a four-week uh mesocycle so three weeks loading one week unloading mm-hmm. and, and and dan's program if anyone was around there at that time was freaking hard man mm-hmm. i mean it was a lot of work a lot of work, so much work. And guys would be dragging by the middle of week two. Mm-hmm. And they've got another 10 days to finish off this loading before they get an unload. Mm-hmm. And they go into week three. And I remember some of the times that people were putting together in week three. Like they, they'd run, you know, Dan had this workout 40 40, right? You got a 40 meter build and then a fly 40. And he'd time the fly or he'd have lights out. I think he had the Brower time lights on the fly on the 40. And in week one, guys would be running three six, and in week four, guys would be running four, <laughs> four two. Yeah, yeah, four, four two, and four wow. two. And I'm just this is brand Sophie new. Sophie could me. run this four two. This is blowing two. me away, right? Like, oh yeah, like four. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could run four two right now at fifty one. Yeah, yeah. I, I could. I couldn't. But um, this would blow me away. I'm just seeing these guys, you know, drag themselves to the track, look terrible, you know, have, have this week of 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 you know the, the unloading week. And then come back and be back at running three five three six again, mm-hmm. you know, or three four. I think Bruni ran a three four, and that's that that really sort of really changed the way I looked at training, and that you know going back to sort of your, your conversation around uh, you know a, 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 a mega wave, right? I mean, it's it's those guys wouldn't have even got out of bed on those days if they looked at an omega wave score on those. Mm-hmm. On, on, yeah, on no, that. no, but that, I, but that was yeah, a, totally. that was a part of Dan's methodology it was a big part of his process right he right. wanted to you know, work them to the point where there there is an adaptation required yeah and uh you know it's it's like i don't know a heck of a lot about the tony wells system but that's you know adapt or die right he would just work you work you work you with high intensity work and you either adapted to it or you didn't yeah. and those who did adapt to it did really really well well i think there's a middle ground there 
that is probably uh, more rational than, I mean, work until you die or, you know, but no, I, 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 I don't know a lot about that system either, other than what you just sort of described. Uh, uh, a lot of people are big fans of it. And, and I think on, uh, you know, in terms of content, I think that system is very good um, for high-end athletes at least. But I think it's also been applied to athletes that are probably a little too young for it, let's say. But I don't know. I, I don't know enough to really comment on it. But did you say at the beginning when you were talking about Charlie and the Hermetic, you know, uh, did, did you say that that was the same as, that that's what Bond, that's how you see Bondershark? Because... It's the exact opposite. So Bond. No, 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 no. What I mean was, was, was Charlie. Like Dan has. Dan was comfortable with athletes coming in the track and not feeling great and yeah. still sprinting fast. Yeah. You know, fast, relative. Yes. So he he would he would you know okay we got a speed day today, all right. And I don't care if you're operating at eighty five percent today. Yeah. We're doing speed. Yeah. And where my my understanding of what Charlie was doing was if you're operating eighty five percent. No, we're not, we're not going to get the adaptations that we want today, so we're going to do something a little bit different. Come back tomorrow and we'll try again. That is exactly it. That, that is exactly it. And uh, Because I, I, knew, I didn't know Charlie well, but he was very good to me when I was a young coach, and, and I got to know him a bit. I went on a few training camps with him. I would roll through uh, when I was first starting in Kamloops, and any time I rolled through Toronto, uh, I, I'd call him up and I, you know, him and I would go out to a cafe or something or, or I would go for breakfast or something and I would have, you know, he would give me input on my plans. I'd show him plans. I mean, he was very good to me. He was a huge influence on me. But when I started Bonnetrek, I had to give all that up because that's mm. not how it's done. It's done like Dan. And I have said this many times is that like I have taken, I, I don't know if you know this, but in the last year, when, when we were in the UK, I took all of Dan's plans to, to prove a point in a lecture. I took all of, and the point I was trying to, trying to make with his plans was the idea that, you know, you, you need to be specific all year round, and Dan starts running sprints pretty much day one, the way Bondarchuk starts throwing day one in the fall, right? The only thing that changes from from every these four month cycles in dance is is the exercises change every four weeks, right? The types of workouts, the types of lifting. But essentially, you're right. That's exactly what it is. You do the same thing. You you repeat the same three weeks. Then as a week out. Now, Bondarchuk. That's what Bondarchuk does. The only I mean, Bondarchuk has. I mean, not to get too deep into it at all, but. Bondarchuk with throwers will use what he calls a complex methodology where nothing changes throughout the entire PDSF. But that's just one of 16 different methods that he identified in the first book. Another, the next most rational approach for throwers would be the what they call a variation program, which is exactly like complex, except you change every every you know week or two weeks or or whatever it is. You're changing which is essentially what Dan does. It's essentially Dan's pro. The only thing with Dan's, with the way Dan had his program set up in Texas and what Bonderchuk does, well, there's two things. One, Bonderchuk doesn't have a rest week. He, he just would go through it. If he was doing, he, he wouldn't use a variation program unless he had a reason to, but if he was going to use a variation program, it, um, they would the, just the exercises would change every two to three weeks or two to four weeks or something like that, right? Uh, and 
the other thing is, is that, you know, Dan, Dan would, you know, those were traditional cycles. They didn't change every year. You did the same thing. And whereas with Bondarchuk, it, it's just continually changing to try to find the right combination of exercise. But essentially the principle, as you just described it far better than I did, but is, is that, yeah, it's exactly, that's exactly what it's based upon. You're doing the same thing and you are expected to adapt, right? As opposed to, trying to unload or load in order to, in order to force an adaptation we force the adaptation by keeping the load consistent now you know that's a fine line to walk because because you know if you don't especially someone starting out like when i have all i, I have all kinds of students that have taken the bonnet check course that will contact me i'm working with a couple uh, all over the place one guy right now who's using a baseball pitcher in in victoria but uh, you know, when, when, when you're first applying it, you have to be extremely careful of the, of, of the loads because you don't have the experience, you don't have the data behind you to know, well, what is the load that is going to be enough? What's the sweet spot in load that's going to be enough to cause the adaptation, but not so much that you're going to kill them, right? Mm -hmm. Right? And Dan knows what that is because Dan has had 20 years of coaching before 95 and basically knew what what the workouts had to be he would change it he, he would adapt to free yeah, for, but, for each I mean, individual a, but you know right that's a big that's a big assumption what is right so basically knew what that load is yes but you have to do something but, so how right you're right but how do you know like it, it's you're 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 assuming at that point that 20 years of coaching experience Gives you that understanding and that and, and that assumption of what that load is and what it should be. That starting point. Do you not think it is? And that's the. No, I think I think I think it's much more. No, I think it's much more difficult than that. I th I don't think you oh, just show up and you okay. coach for twenty years and you understand it, right? I think there's a no, lot. Of, yeah. There's a lot of coaches that have been coaching for their entire lives and have still don't have a a first clue. You know why they have this much load? They just do that because right. that's what they did or that's what their mentors did or what have you, right? But even then, like, and you, you, you go back to sort of sports science, like without support, you know, real objective data, we're still kind of just guessing, you know, and we're mm -hmm. guessing on a lot of these things. And we're guessing on, again, the adaptation of load of multiple different systems for multiple different individuals. And it's all a guess. So it's, uh, what I'm saying is we have to, you know, we make these assumptions based on these best guesses on based upon our experience. Mm -hmm. And it's I just feel like, you know, we we probably take often more often than not, we're assuming more than what we know. And we kind of that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Right. We're our, mm -hmm. we're kind of too insecure sometimes to say that mm -hmm. we, we you know we're just kind of guessing here, which is the whole mm -hmm. thing. That's that's what coaching is. Right. We we impart some sort of load upon an athlete and we guess on the adaptation traditionally that's a, that's a little bit different with the Bonnerchuk system Bonnerchuk will tell you that ex exactly. he's told me that many times yeah right. I, I've, I've asked him many times well why did you pick that and he goes I'm just right I don't know yeah I'm just, but, I'm just, I mean he's literally said that to me I, but, I'm just but 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 then you he's know. you know as you know running the Bonnerchuk system and tracking the adaptation you can you track the adaptation in real time so you're not guessing and you run enough of those over and over and over again. And like you say, you, you are now going into each different time that you're running a PDSF. You have information from the previous PDSFs. 
Yes. Right. So you, I know. So a basic you have now. Point. Yeah. You've got objective data, not just subjective data, not just feelings. You know. So that's what's one of the things that I really appreciate about that. And I don't think we're yeah. there yet. And I don't think the you know the interaction of science with coaching is there yet. Right. So for example, let me just ask you a question. What is the hardest session of these four? Three by sixty with eight minutes. Assume they're all maximal. Three by sixty with eight minutes. Mm -hmm. Two by eighty with ten minutes. Four by fifty with six minutes. Or two nineties with twelve minutes. Two nineties with twelve minutes. Why? Why is that the hardest session? Because the recovery is going to enable you to generate the the highest output. You don't think you'd be able to generate that highest output with four fifties with six minutes? You don't think six minutes is is enough on the five, or three sixties with eight minutes? Being put on the spot with uh, with what I know, no, I think I think. And you've only 90s. got you've only got two of them, so you're saying yeah. that two nineties is a harder session now than four fifties. Okay, I would I would I would I would say that it depends on the athlete. And, right. and, and then why you, you, you said, give the, you, you give that to a distance runner. Well, I'm going to tell you that that whatever has the most volume is going to be, you know, right. you give that to a marathoner, whoever, whatever has the most volume is going to be the biggest load because because they, they can't they can't generate the force output. But you give that to a Donovan. And it easily could be the two nineties. Well, well, there, and then that, there you go by your definition of load. You can't understand. You you can't define yeah. load on neural Good tasks, point. right? Yeah. And or output or whatever you want to yeah. want to use there. You know, it's 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 um, you know, write these ones down. You got a pen? Yeah. Uh, I, I'd be interested in what you think about this. Six okay. by two hundred, at ninety two percent. Oh my God! Okay. With yeah. six with six minutes rest. And if you're yeah. at, at home listening to this, you know, write these down and see. So okay. first one, six two hundreds at ninety-two yep. percent with six minutes rest. Got it. Number two, four by three hundred at ninety percent with five minutes rest. Do you have an answer to this? I'll, I'll let me uh, let me go through this. <laughs> okay. Go Number ahead. three, six yeah. by six by two hundred yeah. at eighty-five percent with four yeah. minutes rest. Yeah. Finally, 150, 200, 250, 200, 150 oh at, my God. Okay. at 87% with five minutes rest. Okay, so what's the question then? What, ha the, what is the, the biggest the question, overall load? The question is, what is the hardest session? And why is that harder than yeah, the other, the other three sessions? The, the, that's that's the what I mean, right? So that's, okay, that's, yeah. so that's my, whole, my whole thing. If we don't know how to define neural load, mm -hmm. how, can we, how can we even start yeah, to begin no, to, all right, how do we organize these sessions exercise. in space and time? How do we organize, you know, if we don't know which session here is harder, you know, because they're all 1,200 meters. They're all the same volume. They're all slightly different densities. There's four minutes, five minutes, five minutes, mm -hmm. and six minutes recoveries. They're all slightly different intensities, 85, 87, 90, and 92. You know, this, this is, this is, well, okay, this so is the I would challenge that, that, tr that sprint coaches have. And this okay, is why so we just end up selecting from workouts. Co generally, most yes. sprint coaches uh, uh, write their programs by selecting from a bunch of workouts. They, they start from the component parts rather than, rather than from the adaptation that they hope.
hope for yeah. or or expect, yeah. right? Oh, and totally. that's that is where where sports science can best aid coaching of of sprinters and coaches of sprinters is to better define what neural load means and how to determine uh, the adaptation from that load. Have you ever heard me tell the, and I, God, I hate to bring this up again because I talked about Sophie in the, in the podcast with Scott and I'm always bringing her up, but she's such a good example because of her ability to be consistent in training and because I had so much data from her over four years, you know, three and a half years. But have you ever heard me tell the story about the testosterone testing with her? It's pretty amazing, right? So... So back to what we were just discussing. So I know basically from my experience as a, as a throws coach, a hammer coach, in the women's hammer, pretty much any woman that comes out to me and wants to, you know, do the bond or check system, I'm going to coach her, blah, blah, blah. I know, you know, I know uh, that, that, that general area that I'm going to start in, okay? I know the place that I'm, that in terms, I, I, would, I would get within you know, a pretty good, uh, like I would hit the target pretty good on the first guess as to what the overall load needs to be with, with that, you know, assuming she has the same type of training experiences, you know, uh, some of the, a lot of the other athletes that I've worked with. Okay. So, and that's about, if we're going to work, if we're going to do, regardless of it's one, two or three programs, each program is going to look like this. It's going to be about 12 to 14 throws maybe 16 throws. Uh, uh, it's going to, you know, you're going to do some kind of special exercise of about 12 to 16 throws after that, you know, throwing some weird weight in the hammer, let's say. Then you're going to go in the weight room. You're going to do some global abilities lift uh, for probably, you know, three times five or, or maybe, you know, I had her doing all kinds of crazy stuff, not crazy stuff, but, you know, multiple sets up to seven, eight sets of, you know, one, two reps at 70, that, that kind of, it's going to be something like that. Okay. Nothing, you know, something that can be repeated every day and twice a day. Right. Uh, and then, and then there's going to be a general strength circuit, uh, ancillary strength circuit. Okay. Approximately. So the two top females I ever coached were her and Sultana. Sultana actually threw further 75, 79 or whatever it was actually threw further than she did with Bonnerchuk. Um, and then there was Sophie who threw 7197 and blah, 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 right? Okay, so those are two completely opposite ends of the spectrum, those two women, right? So Sultana wasn't even, couldn't even go close to 16 throw. I mean, I had her up there sometimes, but generally the best reaction you would ever get from her was probably closer to 10 or 12 throws. And, and you go down those, you know, that, that list of exercises. I told, you know, that's about the scale at which you would, you would, you know, uh, you would proportion the loading for her. So it was less than this, this starting point that I'm describing for this imaginary new athlete. Sophie, on the other hand, had, uh, you know, I mean, I just found over time that she reacted better to 18 to 20 throws in a per session and a little bit more. She needed more volume essentially right and i would get a better reaction so one day uh you remember barry fudge right who was our physiologist there came in it's uh, apologies to people who've heard this story before but hang on he had all these testosterone kits uh these testing kits 
salivary testosterone, where you measured salivary testosterone through a salivary, uh, you know, you, you do a spit sample every day. And so he came in and popped his head in my office in Loughborough one day, and he goes, hey, Derek, I got all these, you know, these kits. Is there, is, can, you think of, can you think of any of the coaches? Because I had, I had a, like eight national coaches and another eight develop, uh, I forget what we called them, but they were basically like uh, not development coaches, but a step above that, but not national coaches. Uh, performance coaches anyways you know he, he says do you can you think of a coach that that could you know would want to do some testing and i was like yeah i can think of one right <laughs> <laughs> so i said hey i said oh, because i knew most of those guys there they don't they didn't even track any 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 performance data so what the hell are you gonna like what are you gonna measure this testosterone against right but the bonner truck system at, with a thrower you have every day a perfect measurable you have what the you know you know how because we throw every day every workout so you know assuming we're outside and we can measure we know exactly what um, the athlete's ability is each day we we know what their status is every day because we measure right they're throwing as hard as you know generally as hard as they can anyways so we so just you know he goes okay well here's how you do it and you know so every day before her second workout she would come in she would sit there for 15 minutes and collect you know spit spit into this 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 vial i'd stored in my fridge in my office and when i had you know a pdsf the first pdsf i'd i hauled it down to Barry's office. I didn't think much of it. I thought, okay, that's cool. Holy shit. Well, I, he, 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 he gets the results back and the curve of the testosterone is essentially mimicking the curve of the throwing data. And I'm like, holy shit. Right. Like, like, this is pretty cool. Right. So, and he's all excited. He actually wrote a paper on it and, uh, and presented on it in Colorado somewhere. Anyways. So we did it for the year. This is the 2012 Olympic year. But one really interesting thing about it. So going into going into the Olympics, the way we had set up the periodization is that <clears throat> she had done a maintenance phase going through because she got standard very early in the U.S. in April. We came back to Europe, and she was, uh, you know, and then I said, okay, you've got standard. You're, you're just going to go out and compete your ass off for the next four weeks, four or five weeks. Blah blah blah. You know, and she was on a plane every weekend and going and getting her nose bloody, competing against all the girls. She European girls. She was going to see at the Olympics. Remember, she's a young. She's the youngest member of that team when she mm -hmm. made it, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyways, so we we but we had Europe. Remember that year we had European Championships in Helsinki. Remember that. So going into so the only way I could make this thing work was to was for her to do a rest cycle through European champs. But I knew from rest cycles, you couldn't rest Sophie, right? If you rest, if you gave her rest, she would drop off. She'd be okay for a couple of days. She might even spike, but then the, but then results would plummet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's no getting around it. We ha I had to send her to European champs in this. I knew, and I, but I just prepared her. I just said, her, look, so you know, she wanted to make the final. I don't think she did because she threw like 67 meters where she had thrown 71 earlier. And I said, you know, you're just going to accept the fact you're not going to be, you're not going to throw far because you would have had, you know, a week or two rest, a rest cycle for us is not complete rest or anything, but whatever, the, the, besides the point. Well, not only are we tracking these throwing measurables, we're tracking the testosterone, okay? And the testosterone is telling us, like, you know, she, she goes into this rest period, and it crashes. I mean, it 
it goes from, you know, whatever, you know, uh, millimoles were just plummets. Like you could just see it right in the middle of that world is European champ. She craps out, starts over again. We do. So we do, we then right after that, we started our last PDSF going into remember, uh, that's where you and I sat down for the first time and ever talked. Remember, it was in uh, was at the training camp in uh, Monte Gordo, right, or mm -hmm. wherever the hell, Portugal, and and so we started that. And again, same thing. Testosterone peaked at the Olympics, right? It was unbelievable, and so you know that in itself was really interesting. So it showed us that there was a correlation between her performance and her salivary testosterone, but it also backed up my own observations, which was, you know. When you rested her, she was, you know, it wasn't just a technical thing, right? Like, it wasn't that she was getting rusty technically or anything, not after a week. It was a physiological response. Once you took the load out, she would crash, right? So it was, it was like, really interesting. And But then, then, Barry does, he, he comes to me and he goes, he goes, uh, he, he goes, give me all your training data. I says, yeah. Well, a throws coach who's doing the bonder truck system is like, is like the golden goose of data, right? Because I mean, think about it. What other sport do you know where you where where if if you go to the coach and you say, okay, you know, can you give me? I want your most specific measurable uh, every day. Well, you can't play a soccer game twice a day every day, and he, and even if you could, with a with a high end soccer player, you can't. How the hell are you going to measure that, right? Like in in an individual, but you can do it in throws. So, anyways, he does all this analysis and he finds through whatever, I mean, I'm not, I'm, math is my worst subject. He finds that there is heat, that there is also a correlation around the throat, because he had a year's worth of data, right? So he, he found that the cycles that we were, um, I was a little off in what I, in my own beliefs, I thought that she needed to be up around 20 to 22 throws a session. But in the, if you looked at the testosterone response and because we knew that it mimicked the actual throwing response, we could trust it, right? So he, he did all this analysis and found that you know, about 16 to 18 throws. When she was throwing 16 to 18 throws per session, eight to 10 times a week, those were her best, that was her best testosterone. That gave her her best testosterone response. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, Like it really was like, like, yeah. like, I mean, you know, that is where, and I, and, you know, I mean, I use Sophie a lot. I mean, people are sick of me talking about her and a couple other, uh, ex you know, uh, uh, examples, you know, like Dylan and Gary is the other one, right? As I'm always talking. But those were, I mean, to me, that is such a clear example where sports science has so, so much to offer, right? But you got to know how to apply it. Yeah. Like, you, you have to be able to make it relevant. And to me, if you don't have that baseline specific measurable if you can't tell me what good performance is at least once a week like if you can, you know i mean you know then you know you're you're like what the hell are you measuring all of these measurables against if you have a battery of classic speed power tests you're doing a vertical jump standing long jump you know, overhead back heave or you're doing force platform whatever the hell it is and you're measuring all this shit every day every week and i don't mean i don't say shit in the way i don't think it's shit i think it's great you should but talk about assumptions mm -hmm. when people take those th that, you know, and they, you know, and this is, there's a whole fucking industry that is selling this where, you know, I, uh, you know, where you walk into these, these, 
these facilities where they're testing all of this and they have, you know, baseball players and football players. It's like, okay, but the, there, there is a very big assumption there, which is if you're better in this, you, they don't even think about it. It's just assume if you're better in these, in this battery, well, you must be a yeah, better. I mean, that's, that's a know, whole different conversation, right? That's, that's, yeah, a, that that's a whole different conversation. But what you're saying is, you know, you're, you're the specific work that you're looking at. And because it's only, you're only measuring a few different variables, it's easier to make those assumptions. It sort of goes back to what we were yes. saying before, right? If you're yeah. just, if you're just reliant or relying on a few component parts, it's easier for you to understand the relationship between those component parts and the adaptation that you see. If you're now, if you were to do that same thing, but you're changing program uh, or you're changing everything about the program weekly, what are you learning? You're not learning anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're dead right. You're dead right. It's, yep. it's yep. you know, and, and sort of just briefly, uh, uh, you know, go to, going back to what I was saying before, it's, it's it, you know, how challenging this is you know and that's one instance where sports science can really aid a coach really can 99.9 percent .9 of the coaches out there aren't going to have access to to um to saliva data or yeah, to or to omega waves right so what what do they do and this is that's the challenge right and that's the challenge of trying to better understand neural load right and and the, the biggest thing is as velocity increases, there's an exponential load to the system. Like the difference between 70 and 74% on a run is next to nothing, right? Mm -hmm. to the, uh, yes. As far as the load to that system. The difference, between, the difference... between 94 and 98 is everything. Massive, Massive yeah, right? Like take, yeah. a, take, a, take a, a 15 second flat 150. For example, right? Say your PR is 15 flat. Well, 50, sorry, 94% is 16 flat. 98% is 15.3. Running 15.3 and running 16 flat, if you've got a PR of 15, is, is, is a two totally different workouts. Two totally yeah. different, right? And this is, what's, this is what many sports scientists won't necessarily understand if they don't really truly understand sprints. And this is what a lot of physiologists won't understand, is that the load as it increases, the, the, as, the, as the intensity increases, the load to the system is exponential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. And that's, well, the other, that's, and what the other makes our, that's what makes it so challenging to try to understand what that is. And that's when the question is before, right? Running a 60 all out and a 90 all out and a 110 all out is you know how, how do we how do we describe a load to the system in those things we it's 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 the biggest challenge i think in sport and that's that's the question that you asked me no I, no absolutely absolutely yeah yeah um okay well there's two questions um <laughs> so uh, let's 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 I, I this one last one may not it's a big question huge question actually it's probably the most important question of the three today but I don't think maybe the answer may not be so long or I don't know we'll see but no last question go ahead sir go ahead I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, but go ahead answer, ask the question I'm gonna I'm gonna well I'm, just you gotta okay so what is what question is sports science not asking that it should be or is or did we just answer that um Okay, like so if from, you could coming have, from if you com, could have coming if you from, could have the world's go ahead, go ahead. 
If you could have the here's another way to look at this. If you were in, let's say you were in a spire. Okay. You're the spire head coach. You have more money than God. You had the best sports science uh, team, whatever, however you wanted to find that, whatever, you know, everybody, you had, you had whatever you wanted. And you could ask any question. You, you could get them to, to answer any question for you, research any question. What would that question be? Yeah. And are we asking it now? Yeah, it's an impossible question to answer. Um, and, and, and it's a cop out answer because I don't think there is one single question that, that science isn't asking in that sense where it, would, where it could be reduced to one. You know, I, I think the biggest thing, like I said, is do we understand adaptation to load as well as we assume that we do? And I don't think we do. And that's, that isn't, you know, that, that isn't a simple question to answer. This isn't, this isn't a question that people aren't asking and people are not working on. But we're decades away from being able to answer that. If we're ever evil, ever even able to answer that. Because that, that goes back again to what we're talking about before. And systems. Systems versus reductionism. You know, we, we did reductionism for a century. And we've learned all about our world and our bodies within this world through a reductive process. We've only kind of just started you know, the opposite of that, the more holistic approach of trying to understand how systems all relate to each other. And that's, you know, when you're talking about the nonlinear human dynamical system, that, that's, that's a, you know, we don't even know how to ask those questions yet. Never mind do the work to try to answer them properly. Right? So it, it's, it's a cop-out answer. And if you, and this is what I mean by the caveat at the start, is if you ask the sports scientist that, question they would probably come up with a much different answer and they probably have an answer totally. for you right and a I, very specific one yeah and, but i don't it's as a coach of sprinters what is the question that that challenges me the most and we've gone over it right is the adaptation to load and then understanding That's my then, answer right what is the definition of load how do you define load what is your definition of adaptation and the relationship yeah, between yeah. adaptation and load and then yeah. And then all of our assumptions based around them isn't, isn't a question, right? That's not a question. That's a field of inquiry that will take another century to, to work its way through, right? So it's, as, as, um, as probably poor an answer as that is, that's, that's all I've got. That's a that's a good one. Have uh, have our buddy Matt on the podcast totally, at some point. Totally, fire that to him. He'll have a much more uh, in depth and detailed analysis to that than than what us two dummies do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, man. I really uh, this has been this was oh my god, this is even better than last day. Uh, different, but even. Uh, but even better than the last day. It was fantastic. So I, I look. For, I mean, we have more questions. I look forward to it. Um, by the time. Probably by the time people hear this one, we will have done most of our recording, but there are more questions to come. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, people hear this and they want it. If we haven't answered something they're interested in, they can send me a, an email. And if we're still recording, maybe we can do it. But I don't want to take up too much of your time. But God, I hope you're getting out of it what I am. I mean, I love this. This has been amazing. Yeah, man. Good chats. I appreciate you, Derek. All right, brother. Hopefully, yeah, people, uh, hopefully people out there enjoy them as well. Thanks, buddy. All right. All right, man.